Well, fun fact of the morning for you, um, you probably didn't know this, I had to look it up, but there has been over 130 million different books written over the course of history. Now, I don't know what that means if you took all of these books and stacked them together, how tall they would be, or if you attached all the pages, how many times they would wrap around the globe or anything like that. But 130 million books is quite a bit. And so I think it's safe to assume that that out of those 130 million, there's definitely a few of those that maybe aren't helpful or useful. And so I I decided to find out, okay, what might be some of these books that that exist out there, but but maybe aren't as helpful as uh, some people might think. So so here's one book. Let me give you an example. Uh, This guy wrote a book called Everything Men Know About Women. And I don't know if you can tell by this picture, it actually has a newly revised and updated. It's actually on its 30th anniversary in which Dr. Alan Francis has resolved to just sleep on the couch for the rest of his marriage, I guess. And so for 30 years, this guy has set it to be his goal and priority to prove what men, everything we know about women. So I was intrigued, as I'm sure you are. Men, show of hands, how many of you want to know what's inside, right? How many of you guys, some of you are looking at your wife right now. Do I raise my hand? No, okay, okay. Let me show you. So I found this picture of what's inside. You're going to love it. It's absolutely blank. It's literally 120 pages of absolutely nothing. And all the guy has done is just changed the title page for 30 years. Because it's true, you know it. This next book, uh, if you're someone who has what's called word aversion, you might want to plug your ears because there's a book out there that's just entitled Moist. It's literally, that's all it is. It's the word moist, and then it, like other words like crevice. And, and like, so all these words that make you just go, yeah, that's kind of an icky word. Yeah. That's all the book is. I think it's safe to say that, that that book is not that helpful. Well, today we are going to talk about a book, perhaps the most popular book throughout entirety, but it's also the most contentious, and that is the Bible. At this point in time, the Bible has been translated into 724 different languages cover to cover. You can add an additional 1,000 languages if you count just the New Testament translation itself. The Guinness Book of World Records suggests that the Bible has been copied some nearly 5 billion times throughout history. And so when it comes to the Bible, the question, the big question, is not, does it exist? Chances are you have one of these. In your home, you might have multiple. You might have multiple translations. You've probably got the Bible app, the most downloaded app in any app store ever on your phone. The question is not, does the Bible exist? But the good question is, is it true? Is it helpful? Is what is said in here actually authentic or not? Recent studies show that four out of 10 people would raise their hands and say that the Bible is either untrue, unreliable, or not helpful. So the question is not, does the Bible exist and should we listen to it? I think the bigger question is, is it true or not? And how do we solve this seemingly barrage of the arguments and the debates and the discountingness, so to speak, of Scripture? So I believe that some people have actually turned their back on faith or Christianity because they had fact-based questions about the validity of Scripture that were answered with faith-based questions. And I want to just add as a caveat, as we start out this morning's message talking about, can I really trust the Bible to be true? Is that whatever doubts you may have, and you might have come in this morning about doubts about Jesus or church or, or in particular Scripture itself, 
Maybe you have someone in your home. Maybe there's a neighbor or a coworker that you've been having conversations with. I just want you to say that, that this is a place we strive to be a church where it's okay to have doubts. In fact, we want to be leaders and pastors and elders who walk alongside with you saying, give us these hard questions. Let us know what you're wrestling with so we can be helpful in the process. And what that also means at the same time too, is we don't want to just stick our head in the sand and ignore all of the other questions out there. That we don't want to be, uh, I don't want us to be a, a church or a group of Christians who somebody poses a great question about the validity of scripture and we just go, la, 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 la I don't want to hear it, la, 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 la. So which means for this morning, one of the things that I'm going to do to start this message is there's not going to be a whole lot of pointing to the Bible to point the Bible to be true. There'll be a little bit at, at the end, but, but mainly it's because I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's, it's, it's worthwhile to give what's called circular reasoning. And circular reason would be if somebody says to you, hey, why is the Bible true? And you said, because the Bible says so. Well, what if they don't believe the Bible to be true? Well, the Bible says so. And that's not going to help anyone. And that might not be helpful for you. And so we don't want to even go there. Because I think what is kind, what is loving, what is a fulfilling of our mission to be disciples, to be a church that makes disciples, to reach people far from God and help them take their next steps of faith, is to provide good answers to good questions. So no circular reasoning for you this morning as we dive into this last part of our series, which is, hey, no offense, but can I really trust the Bible to be true? But I do ask one thing of you is to check yourself where you might fall on that spectrum. Because on one side of the spectrum over here is what I would call radical skepticism. And those are the people who say, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter the truths you give or the facts you provide. I will always believe the Bible is false. Avoid radical skepticism. And as we just talked about, though, on the exact opposite side, avoid the naive certainty well, why do you believe in what the Bible says? Why do you believe it to be true? I just do. Well, that's not really helpful, especially for someone else that you may call, be called to walk along and disciple. Instead, where we want to land, and hopefully this morning will be helpful for you, is to find confident trust in Scripture. So we need to be confident, but not naive in our trust of the Bible. We need to be confident that it is authoritative, that it is the word of God, that it is inspired, that it does not make mistakes in in giving us the bigger plan of God's entire desire for us and the world around us. But I never want us to be naive about it. So let me start here this morning then. What would you expect? What would you seemingly need in order to trust the Bible or any book to be worth, worthwhile and valuable to your life. I thought of four things this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can follow along with us here today. Number one is you would want this book to be historically accurate. Now, while the Bible is not a historical textbook, it does have history in it, and it's historically accurate. In fact, the books of Judges through Esther are labeled in the genre of history because they give us the history of the nation, the ancient nation of Israel, of God's chosen people. But in order for something to be historically accurate, you need to get three things correct. You need dates, places, and people correct, Right? Let me give you an example. I'm going to put a statement up here on the screen, okay? Uh, And you're probably, I'm going to ask you if this is true or false. I'll I'll read this, but you can decide. I know you're probably thinking, like, Eric, 
whatever you put on the screen is always true, right? It's like, huh, maybe not. I don't know. In the year 1991, one of the biggest basketball breakthroughs occurred when Steve Jobs founded Nike in Dallas, Texas. On the count of three, I want you to shout out true or false. One, two, three. Okay, that was seemingly weird. Let's put the, can we put that one back up real quick? Put it back up for me. Now, on the count of three, I want you to shout out why you know this is false, okay? One, two, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy in the first service was like, everything. Like, I was just like, okay, smarty pants. Because in this statement, the places aren't right, the dates aren't right, and the people aren't right. So this is what the statement should look like. If we're trying to give you a brief history of how Nike was founded, here it is. In the year 1964, not 1991, one of the biggest track and field, threw you a curveball, it was track and field originally, not basketball, breakthroughs occurred when Phil Knight, not Steve Jobs, founded Nike in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon. History, when it is deemed reliable always gets people, places, and dates correct. And the Bible covers some nearly 1,500 years of history with immaculate, immaculate accuracy, arguably more than any other book. In fact, there's been 25,000, so two five comma zero zero zero, 25,000 archaeological digs. So these uber smart people who, who are out in, in, in the Middle East where the, all the Bible time st- stuff happened, where, where they do these digs and they get out tran- uh, cranes and they dig stuff up and they uncover ruins and they find artifacts, 25,000 archaeological digs, all 100% of them of these digs have proven that the dates, the facts, the people of Scripture to be true. Even more so, if you talk to a history professor and you say, how do we know that Aristotle wrote what Aristotle wrote? How do we know that Homer wrote what Homer wrote? He would tell you what was called an authenticity chart. He would talk about the, the way that we determine something in antiquity was real or not. And the way you go about this is you say, okay, here is the date in which something is said to be written. And then they would say, okay, well, when is the earliest copy that we have? How many years are in between it? Because that gives you a pretty good idea. And how many copies? And then that usually gives you somewhat of an accuracy. So get this. So Homer, who wrote the Iliad, one of the most famous epic novels of all time, written in 800 BC, 400 years before the earliest copy, but there's 643 copies. That's quite a bit. Now, you might say to yourself, but look at Caesar here. The Gallic Wars attributed to to his conquest and all that type of stuff. It wasn't until a thousand years later, a thousand years, that they have their first manuscript copy, and there's only 10 of them. Look at it with Scripture, the New Testament. It was written and finished around 100 uh, uh, AD, and it was about the first time we have fragments of it. Less than 100 years between the original writing and the dating of those manuscripts. And there's over 5,000 manuscripts. And they say that up to 99.5% accuracy. The Bible is historically accurate. And the accuracy should give us confidence. Number two is that you would expect a book with this type of power and weight to be scientifically consistent. Eric, You just said science, we're in a church. Aren't we supposed to keep those things separate? Faith, science, they don't really match. Come on, you you gotta know better than this, right? 
Come on. We, we know that things of faith and religion, no matter what religion, it's always changing and, and swaying, and it's, it's always morphing. But, you know, science, science is fact. That's what we, that's what we love about science. We, we can see it. We can prove it. It's true. Mm-hmm. Because science never changes, right? Let me give you an example. Um, here's a man. And this is uh, George Washington here. Hopefully you can tell. Number one, first president, great dude. Never hung out with him, but I uh, heard he was a cool guy, like to chop things down, real manly guy. We know that George Washington died December 14th, 1799 in his Mount Vernon home. The, the, the way that the history describes it is that he got uh, a cold, went back home, and then developed a throat infection, okay, which then led him to developing this thing called quinsy, which I don't know, it's a really bad throat infection or whatever. And so here he is, he's got this throat infection from a really bad cold, and so his doctors decide to do what they can to heal him. And so one of the common things back then is what was called bloodletting which is like, oh, you've got an infection. Cool. Stick your arms out. We're going to slice you open and let all the blood come out. Because, you know, the, the theory was that the blood would take all of the infection out with it. You know what they wouldn't do to you today if you went to the hospital with an infection? Is say, hey, give me your arm. I'm just going to cut it off and let all the blood out. You cool with that? Because scientists have discovered that your blood is actually very, very important to your survival, and it's helpful. Now, the Bible's not a scientific textbook. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Psst, hey, by the way, don't, don't do that. That's bad. It doesn't say that. But it is scientifically consistent. Let me give you an example of how the Bible was ahead of its time scientifically that was later, thousands of years later, confirmed to be true. Um, I'm going to talk to you about circumcision here for a minute, okay? Go ahead, giggle, circumcision. Ah, uh, funny, Okay. In Genesis chapter 17, just follow with me here for a moment. Junior high boys are like, I'm in. Let's talk about it. Yeah. In Genesis chapter 17, God said, hey, every male son in the Israelite people needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. Eighth day. Now, the interesting thing is is the eighth day is kind of a a very random number. In in scripture, the holy numbers are 3, 7, 40, uh, 50, all all those types of 144. Like why the eighth day? Rarely ever does the eighth day or or the number eight appear elsewhere to be like a very specific and significant number throughout scripture. Why the eighth day? Well, the 1930s, a bunch of scientists discovered a blood clotting agent to heal wounds, and uh, someone graciously helped me correct the pronunciation of this, which is prothrombin. Nailed it. In the 1930s, uh, discovered prothrombin, which is a vitamin K kind of uh, thing that, that, that creates blood clotting so that your wounds can heal closely. And not only did they discover it, but they also discovered something extraordinarily interesting which is that every single male-born human being has at its height one day out of their entire life in which they have the most natural prothrombin, I don't think I said it right that time, in their body. You want to guess what day that is? The eighth day. So for thousands of years, take your son, circumcise them on the eighth day. The consistency should give us confidence. Here's the third thing I thought of. What would a powerful book to give you life, what would it need? And it would need to be remarkably prophetic. 
And when I say prophetic, what I mean is, is that there should probably be stuff that if it said this person is going to go here and do that, that that person should have gone there and done that thing. Throughout scripture, there's over 300 prophecies about where Jesus was going to be born, what he was going to do, when he was going to come back, all of those types of things. And the Bible is so much more than a crystal ball or a collection of fairy tales, but the fulfillment of its prophecies is unconditional to its importance and its value. Because so much of the Old Testament points and paints this picture that the world needs to be redeemed and restored. And humankind cannot figure it out for themselves, so therefore they need a Savior. And the Savior's going to come like this, and he's going to go there, and he's going to do these things, and he's going to rise again from the grave, and he's going to conquer sin and death once and for all. So much of the first half of the Bible, Bible's in two parts, in Old Testament and New Testament, points that there will be a man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, who would be the fulfillment, the Yeshua Messiah and that he will accomplish each and every one of those. You see, the Bible as a whole is important because it's one unified story connected together. It's not just a bunch of pieces that are randomly taken and here it is. Let me give you an example. Um, This past weekend, I had the opportunity to visit some family uh, up in Seattle, which it was Seattle, so, you know, take that for what it was. And my mom, though, for the last couple of years has done this gift for all of her grandkids. So she's got four grandkids and she gets them a puzzle. And so every year at Christmas, she takes a picture of the kids in their matching pajamas. And then the next year she turns them into a puzzle. And so these are all young kids. Our son is the oldest who's six. So there's, he's like, there's like six, five, four. And then there's a young one who she's like, I don't know, a year and a half or something like that. Okay. And so every year my mom's been getting them puzzles. And so they're young kids. So like she gets them the puzzles with the big old pieces, like 30, 40 pieces. It's kind of obvious where they all, all go. Well, this year, my mom didn't realize it, but one of the ones she got, she accidentally checked the box for 400 pieces. So the kids get this puzzle. They're excited. They go to the kitchen table and they dump it out. Our son just goes, wow, this is going to be hard. His cousin just kind of looks at it, sticks his finger in his nose, I think. Our daughter Avery just gets up and walks away from the table. She's like, yeah, I ain't into this. When you have 400 pieces just laying on the table, what does it look like? It's not a trick question. (laughs) It just looks like a a massive mess, right? Like, who's going to put this together? But when you take every single piece and you take time to study it, and figure out where it goes. And every piece intricately connects together, and there's only one spot for it to go. It creates a beautiful picture. That's why the remarkable prophetic nature of Scripture is important, because each and every prophecy is vital to telling the larger story of the Son of Man coming to this earth to live a perfect life, die on the cross for your sin, even though you and I don't deserve it, that he covers the weight of our debt against God because of his love. One of the oldest arguments against Scripture was that the Old Testament, that that a bunch of monks actually wrote in all the prophecies after the birth of Jesus. But in 1947, the greatest archaeological discovery of all time was called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a little kid in the Qumran community. He threw a rock into a cave, heard a crash, rushes in, and they find 15,000 biblical manuscripts, carbon dated to over 300 years prior to the birth of Jesus, all providing a 99.5% match 
of what we see in our scripture today. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem and you visit the Israel Museum, you could see what's called the Scroll of Isaiah. It's this nearly perfect condition. I guess there's kind of a hole there, so I don't know. But this, it's this beautiful manuscript of the prophet Isaiah, in which it has the most prophecies about Jesus and them being fulfilled. There's a man by the name of Peter Stroner. He was a mathematician who said, there's over 300 prophecies about the Son of God. What are the chances that someone could fulfill just eight of those? What are the chances? And so he crunched the numbers. He did the math. I don't know what he did. He did smart people things. And he came to the conclusion that the odds would be one in 100 quadrillion. That's like 10 to the power of 17 or something insane like that. Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ, put it a little bit more tangible. He said, you want to know the odds of somebody fulfilling the prophecies of Jesus? He says, imagine somebody filled up the state of Texas with quarters all the way to someone's knee height. And then you dropped them in the middle of the state and let them walk around for as much as they wanted and then said, stop, bend down and pick up, reach your hand all the way down and pick up the one quarter that had a red dot on it. Those are the odds. Yeah, those are the odds that only the Son of God could meet. It's remarkably prophetic. So that when Peter writes in, in, in 2 Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, 19-21, he says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention, he says. He continues in verse uh, to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He continues, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of the things, a.k.a. it didn't happen because some dude found it interesting. Goes on though. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The remarkable prophecies should give us confidence. Here's the fourth thing. That if there's a book claiming to be the source of life, it ought to resonate deeply with us. It ought to stir something within us. While the Bible is not a self-help book, it will help you to live life and navigate life's trials much, much better. We think that we read the Bible when in actuality the Bible reads us. You're going through that situation. You've got that conflict. You made that mistake. Don't worry. We've got stuff to say about that. See, the Bible's not just a list of rules or thou shall nots. And it's not so incredibly dated that we can't glean from it and apply it to our life. Rather, the Bible is what you would want a book of life to be. And that is it is emotionally raw at many points. It's refreshingly honest. It's applicable to real life. It's easy at times to get a hold of and it resonates deeply within us. Like there's this sense in which we can say when reading scripture often, hmm, yeah, I can relate to that. Let me give you a fun example here. In Proverbs chapter 17, this might be something you can relate with. It says, a bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. 
Some of you are like, well, what kind of steak is it? Is it like a porterhouse or a tomahawk? Because, man, I would sit down with my worst enemy and smash that bad boy. But you know this to be true, right? Man, I will eat some stinky broccoli with the people that matter most to me over a nice, juicy filet. Can't believe I'm saying it. (laughs) Seared to perfection over the person that I dislike. Man, I can relate to that. I can relate to maybe when, when Paul says, I've reflected on my life. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should. Maybe you can resonate with when the psalmists cry out, Lord, I have nothing to say but hear my prayer. Maybe the words of Jesus strike you to the core right now when he says, come to me, you who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. Man, I can... I can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to the story of Joseph in which he was beat up by his older brothers. (laughs) Then he was handed off into slavery. He had an opportunity for vengeance, but instead he chose forgiveness. Man, I I can relate to that. Maybe the story of the prodigal son of a wayward soul who spurned everything that his father had done and given to him. And all he wants to do is be home. And he musters up the courage and the boldness to say, Father, just take me back as one of your indentured servants. And instead the father says, come here, my son. To open loving arms. Man, I can relate to that. There's something that resonates deeply with us about Scripture. The deep resonance should give us confidence. But despite all of this, your struggle may be elsewhere. If you're somebody who's struggling to believe Scripture is true, or if you're having a conversation with somebody who's who's struggling to believe that the Bible is true, I think, you know, maybe it's a doubt. Or maybe it's when it's like, well, the Bible says this, and I would just really rather the Bible not say that. Or the Bible says that over there, but that's not how it played out in my life. That the struggle might not be the history, the science. It, may, it might not be the prophecy. It's rather maybe something along the lines of how Mark Twain felt about, about Scripture. He said this, he said, I am not troubled by the things in the Bible which I do not understand. He says, but I am troubled by those things which I do understand and which I find very difficult to measure up to. You know, I can just speak candidly and transparently for a moment. I think oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when somebody says, I don't really trust the Bible, and I'm just a little skeptical, I don't know if it's really as true as it claims to be, da-da-da-da, Chances are, again, just chances are, that's probably not someone who's actually done the homework. That's probably not somebody who's looked at the facts. That's probably not somebody who's compared it to other literature that they would deem unequivocally true compared to what the Bible provides to us in a factual sense. Probably not. It's probably more due to the fact that they have a struggle in which they say, if this is the book of life, 
Is this, if this is the source of, of what Christians and disciples ought to live like and be and what the church is supposed to act, why isn't it happening? My experience is when I talk to people who say, I struggle with believing the Bible to be true, it's not the facts. It's not the history. It's because they take this and they, they know maybe some stuff or they have an inkling of what should be inside of it. And they say, and I know people who say they submit themselves to this book. But it's not doing what it claims to do. It hasn't actually changed their life at all. That's why I say my greatest apologetic, if you want to prove that the Bible is true and trustworthy, know the facts, know the details, don't stick your head in the sand, but the truest way, the best defense for confident trust in the Bible is a transformed life. You want somebody to to wake up to the reality of the truth of the word of God is let it transform you. Let it change your heart and your mind, the way that you, you manage your time, your money, your household, your friends, the way in which you extend forgiveness and grace, the way in which you strive to be patient. The best defense for the power, the truth of scripture is a transformed life. In other words, it's not necessarily the history or the science, or the prophecies. It's usually the lack of transformation. Someone says, okay, well, well I've got this person over here. And he or she says that she, she's a Christian, goes to church, believes in Scripture. And this person over here doesn't. Why is this person, their life's falling apart, so is theirs, and they have no more peace or hope in life than they do. This is the person who, who is called to integrity, but they have less integrity than that person over there. This is the person called to to shower others with love and grace and forgiveness, and yet they seem to be so visceral or hate-filled in their responses to people, especially those who don't agree with them. These are supposed to be people who are supposed to be generous with their time, their talents, their resources, their money, and yet all they seem to be consumed with is how can they get another dollar in their bank account and being able to do whatever they can to make sure that happens. I think oftentimes the biggest struggle is because we don't actually let the Bible transform our lives. So how do we do that? Real quick, three quick movements as we wrap up today's message. How does that transformation rise to the surface? First thing is we need to remember that Jesus submitted himself to Scripture. You've heard us say this here before at our church is that that our faith is linked to a man, not a book. This book tells us about a man, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the grave. This book gives us the accurate account of that man. And if somebody can call the shot of dying and rising from the grave, I'm going to follow whatever he says. And that man is Jesus. And Jesus, though, submitted himself to Scripture, albeit the Old Testament, when he was alive. When he was a young boy, he was caught teaching uh, the, the, the prophet Isaiah as if he was a teacher of the law. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before the beginning of his ministry, Satan came to tempt him and say, how about some bread? And he was like, you got a steak? No, I'm just kidding. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but the word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why the Bible is referred to as the bread of life. We use the the word 
Bible or scripture, it purely means it is God-breathed or it is inspired by God. Timothy puts it this way, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Your translation might say, all scripture is inspired. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then verse 17 says, why? So that you may be thoroughly equipped. Like if you've ever wanted to know, hey, hey, Pastor, what, what, what would God say to me if we had dinner? If Jesus and I sat down and we shared a nice, big, juicy head of broccoli or steak or whatever, what would he say to me? It's right here. It's already written down. It's already been breathed out. It's already been inspired. You want to know what God would say to you, where you are in your stage of life right now? It's in here. And Jesus submitted himself to scripture so that we might be thoroughly equipped to live life like him. And so the life of the disciple, this is the second movement, the life of the disciple is one where we submit to Jesus. Our lives as Christians, your life as a disciple of Jesus, if you claim to be one, is submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life. And one of the things that's consistent throughout scripture is that every single author or person who wrote things down or wrote things about themselves did two things. Number one, they were insufficient to save themselves. Number two is they didn't hide that either. If the whole point of the Bible was just to write down facts and history about people, there's a lot of stories I bet people would have tried to, hey, let's, you know, remember that thing with that person that didn't go so well and they made that bad choice? Yeah, let's just go ahead and erase that real quick. Cool, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're painting the picture. It's not about us. When we are weak, we are made strong in the spirit of the living God. We submit to Jesus because he is king, he is Lord, and we are not. And all scripture points to Jesus, not the other way around. Look at what Jesus has this encounter after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. There's these two men arguing. Hey, all that stuff in Jerusalem about that Jesus cat who, who, who died and rose again, what do you make out of all of it? And Jesus kind of poof, appears out of nowhere and says, I'm glad you asked. Let me answer for you. In verse 25, he says, so he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's a way of saying beginning with the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We submit to Jesus, but scripture points us to Jesus. And Jesus says, everything in this book points to me. Here's how you live as if I'm Lord of your life. So here's the third movement, which is, so therefore, we submit to Scripture. Jesus submitted himself to Scripture. We submit to Jesus. Therefore, we submit to Scripture. As Jesus modeled, you want to have a vibrant faith? You want to follow God? You have to begin with Scripture. If Jesus is Lord in your life, you have to let it do life-changing work in you. As author Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
It penetrates even to dividing. Look at what it talks about. It, it divides. It's kind of an analogy, but it says soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Scripture is oftentimes like surgery. It's given to us to show us what we need to do to be healed, to be made whole, to be restored, and to redeemed. It's not just about head knowledge and having all the facts right. We need to let it change our hearts. And one of the things we talk about and we preach all the time here is you can't just know the Bible. You got to apply it to your life. And if you want to apply it to your life, you got to find some helpful accountability. You got to find a group or a cohort or some other people who aren't going to just say, did you read your Bible this week? But say, what did you learn? What is Jesus trying to convict and sharpen you into in this life? This year, I made a change, our, our staff, they do these weekly reports. And I used to ask on the weekly report, did you read your Bible this week? And I got rid of that question, because I don't really care about that question. I mean, I do, but you know what I'm saying. And I changed it to, what is Jesus teaching you this week? Because it's one thing to have the head knowledge. It's another thing to have the heart change. Because it's hard to argue with a transformed life. So I'll close with this this morning is that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. And the more faithfully we understand the Bible, the better equipped we are to follow Jesus as Lord of our life. That God's word is designed to transform your life. And your first question might be, is it true? But my question, my challenge, my encouragement is, have you given it the chance to do that work in your life? Because some of you, you might be going through a season right now in which you lack peace, and the Bible can give you reassurance of peace. Some of you might be going through a season in which you've made a string of mistakes, and you want to know, does God still love me and have an amazing plan for my life? The answer is yes, and you can find it in here. Some of you might try to say, well, here's what I do for work and here's what I do with my life, but I have my passions over here. How do I serve God with everything and all that I am? The answer is in here. How do I come alongside of my husband? How do I come alongside of my wife? How do I come alongside of my friend? How do I come alongside of my kids and be a light of love and grace and encouragement? The answer is in here. And so for a lot of us, I think the challenge isn't, is it true or not? Is it real or not? The challenge is, have you given it the shot that it deserves to be or not? But once you have obedience to it, once you have that confident trust, it can begin to transform your life. So one of the tools I want to leave you with this morning, if you want to figure out how do I begin to not just read the Bible, but apply it to my life, you can go to our church website. You can find it on the app as well. But you'll get this explanation of what's called a HEAR journal, fcc-online.org slash Sunday. And this will serve as an opportunity to lead you through something that takes 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. Pick a certain time of the day in a certain place and read the Bible in a certain way to hear from God. What might he be wanting to say to you in your life right now? That if the Bible is real, if the Bible is true, if the Bible brings life, it is powerful, you at least owe it the shot to try it out. And so you can go to that website, you can get that link. That's just a way of reading the Bible and seeking to let it transform you. It's not the way, it's not the only way, 
but it is the way. For he began to say, if Jesus is Lord of my life, and if he submitted himself to scripture, then I should follow suit. No offense. Can I trust the Bible to be true? No offense. Maybe given it the shot it deserves. Pray with me as we continue to worship this morning. Lord, we pause to remember your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. We pause to remember the truth that we know about you given to us through the word of God. God, that, that, that you spoke through, through human authors, the power of your spirit, that this book is authoritative, that this book is full of truth. It is full of life transforming work and, and we wanna be, be recipients of that. Lord, we pray for a revival in our hearts. We pray for a revival in our homes. We pray for revival in our communities, but we cannot have that revival unless we know that you are moving within us. And one of the, one of the surest and purest ways that you move in our life is when we allow your word to speak to us. Not just what we already know, but what we don't. Not just what we want to hear, but what we don't want to hear. Not just where we feel good, but where we need your conviction through the power of your spirit. And that when, when, when sin tries to remind us that we're not good enough, when sin tries to remind us that we haven't earned it, when sin tries to remind us of everything that we haven't done, your word gives us the reassurance that we are loved by you. We are redeemed for you. We are restored through the gifts of your son, Jesus, through his grace, through faith in his work. We thank you for your holy scripture, its power, its authority, and it's the way that it breathes life. And so we ask, I ask, Lord, every single person in this room, every person who might catch this online today, tomorrow, sometime later, Lord, may they receive the power, the life-transforming work that comes from digging in to your word. We love you, and we thank you. Thank you for this precious gift your word to us. It's your name that we pray. Amen.